Hello and welcome to the Magic Chit Chat on this Thin Fried Friday. Joining me today is Dr. Robert Monroe, manager of the Southeastern Turtle Cove Environmental Research Station, which is in our neck of the woods. What used to be woods, what is now swamps. And Rob can tell us a little bit what used to be gigantic woods and forests. And so, Rob, how are you today? And let's tell us about it. I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, you hear down a lot. I see you every day going out there, checking on everything. Uh, how long? Tell us the history about Turtle Cove and how long it's been there and when it was built. And well, what it is. We take Turtle Cove. People don't know what is Turtle Cove. Well, the Turtle Cove Environmental Research Station is Southeastern Louisiana University's primary access to the Manshack wetlands, which is uh, an area that used to be swamp, is now marsh, and we have so many activities that are done there in terms of research, education, and outreach. So it's the primary research facility and educational facility for the university. But you asked me about the history of it, and uh, that's something that's really fascinating because that place was built in 1908 by a guy named Mr. Edward Schlater. You've probably seen the Schlater Foundation plaques at different universities. He's, their foundation has done a lot of work uh, from a university standpoint. And it was a hunting cult, uh, club for him and for all of his friends back in the day. Uh, supposedly some vice presidents hunted there uh, before and, um, you know, friends from New Orleans, etc. And when he died in the mid-1940s, the facility became more of kind of a local person's hunting club. So you had families from the Hammond area, Baton Rouge area, New Orleans area, that just kind of participated in using Turtle Cove as a recreational facility, family recreational facility. They had a lease. I think uh, it was Tulane University that was managing the estate at the time. Um, in the 1960s, Turtle Cove, the estate, was donated to the state of Louisiana. And Wildlife and Fisheries managed it, and it was actually their headquarters for these Manshack wetlands uh, until, I guess, 1981, when Southeastern Louisiana University was looking for a field station for its biology department. And so we entered in uh, to a 99-year lease with a 25-year option in 1981 for Turtle Cove to be the university's biological field station. That name was changed in 1992 to the Turtle Cove Environmental Research Station just because it was more interdisciplinary. More disciplines than just, say, biology. We have chemistry folks that do work out there now. We have environmental historians that come out. Uh, we have educators, you know, we have teacher workshops. Uh, we've even had artists come out and do things at Turtle Cove. I can tell you a few weeks ago, we had a uh, writer's workshop out there where a guy and his dad had built a beautiful strip cedar canoe and he got a grant to have 15 writers, nature writers, come out. I let them stay at Turtle Cove and they wrote all about the things that they were seeing in nature and they wrote it on this waterproof paper. And so that paper is now being placed onto the strip cedar canoe and is going to be gel coated. It's probably already done fiberglassed over where you can read it. And that canoe is going to be shown in museums uh, all around the New Orleans area. So that's just a little uh, artsy part of some of the things we do. But obviously, the Southeastern Biology Department is the primary user of Turtle Cove for research purposes. And we do have folks from other 
universities come down as well. But Southeastern, obviously, is, is our key user. So I rode by there one time with a boat. First, uh, people can't drive there. They have to go by boat. Uh, but there's two uh, structures there, so people can stay overnight, but also you have some day trips. And you mentioned earlier, uh, if people are interested, they can uh, find you and uh, book uh, uh, tours or whatever to get some information on there. You can get the information here at Middendorf's in our little shop, or you can then contact you. Um, but so how many people can stay overnight out there in, in we classrooms? Have, we have a uh, limit, and it's a state fire marshal limit of 15 people. And usually that's our researchers or our university, uh, you know, grad students, uh, groups of people that are staying out there doing work. Uh, sometimes we'll have a teacher workshop group that'll stay overnight. So uh, different types, but 15 is our limit. And, uh, we well, do, inside the building. Inside the building. I mean, if you're right. in the swamp, I mean, people really want to experience nature. They should sleep there out in the lawn and listen to the gator and the frogs. I right. mean, that's what you do. And bring their uh, mosquito insect repellent, for sure. Well, what's the whole fun of uh, being, you know, being in nature if you don't fight the mosquitoes in the environment? That's exactly right. The best way to view everything is to go out on our boardwalk, which is about a half mile long uh, behind Turtle Cove. And that's a beautiful way to have uh, really close access with the marsh. And some of our students before have seen uh, during the day or at night uh, wild boar out there. We've seen deer. Uh, there's even been a bobcat sighting. In fact, uh, the bobcat was sighted uh, very soon after we noticed our regular Turtle Cove cat, who is our rat control uh, mechanism, disappeared. So Maybe he grew and turned into a bobcat. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> what about gators? Maybe it's that one that's mounted that you yeah. have donated. Yeah, yeah they're, they're grown. You know, like some people see a mouse and think that grows into a rat. Not exactly. <laughs> like a cat doesn't grow into a bobcat. Right. right. Um, gators, any gators out there? Lots of gators uh, all around this yeah. region, obviously. And um, I guess for the past six months, there has been one in particular. He's probably about a, a three-footer, I guess, that's in, at the end of one of the logging ditches at the furthest end of our boardwalk. So it's always nice when we're bringing groups out on the boardwalk and doing things, you know, dip netting and stuff to say that there's probably an alligator at the end, and he usually is there. Yeah. And he's not on battery remote control. Not? No. <laughs> How many people a year you lose towards when they try to feed the alligators and they get dragged into the marsh and everything? Yeah, you keep count of it? Uh, just a few. Few. We've only lost a few. We do ask people, by the way, to not feed the alligators because yeah. it's not good. No, it's not uh, good. to do that. You mentioned a few seconds ago. I heard this, and I'm real fascinated since we sort of in our neck of the woods. And you said the logging canals, and then people fly in and out of the airport in uh, Armstrong, and they go over. You see all the trenches like a spider web and everything. Um, and also, I just watched, watched one time in Panchatula, they talked about when they stopped the logging here in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't realize our manship swamp, there used to be gigantic trees. I mean, the cypress, some of them, they were like 3,500 years old. People don't realize it. Yeah, the, uh, and I show pictures. When we do our lectures, I show pictures of one of the only virgin cypress swamps that you can go into now in Louisiana. That's the Cat Island Refuge up near St. Francisville, near the Angola State Penitentiary, uh, Tunica Hills, St. Francisville area. You can go there and actually view the biggest tree in the eastern United States, and it is a bald cypress tree. And there's 17 of them left. That's what this entire Manshack area used to look like. Uh, and we logged out from about the uh, 
1870s to the mid 1950s. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, one of our uh, environmental historians, longtime environmental historians, Al Drange at Southeastern, uh, told me that he got a phone call from the loggers when they were about to cut the last tree down in 1956 and said, you better come take a picture of it because we're about to cut it down. And that's when, you're exactly right, the last of the virgin cypress trees were taken out in this area. And when they pull those trees out, you can imagine as they pulled them out one behind the other, those trees would create uh, sort of a ditch mm-hmm. because it would just you know displace the soil as it's being drug out. And they pull them one behind the other and you create a pretty big ditch. And as you mentioned, if you get on Google Earth and you zoom down into the Manshack region, you will see what looks like spokes on a uh, wagon wheel or a bicycle tire or a spider web, whatever you want to call it. And those are the remnant legacy logging ditches that are still seen and visible in this area. I have people that send photographs to me all the time when they're flying over uh, out of New Orleans looking down at the area. And so that's what's left behind. And we converted this swamp, which is a wetland dominated by trees, into a marsh, which is a wetland dominated by grass. And unfortunately, it's still uh, a wetland that's even disappearing even more. I mean, we're moving towards well, open cutting water. The, cutting the trees definitely was, I would say, the first impact on that losing was our the first land. One. I mean, our grand grandfathers uh, had a good head start on it. Yeah. You know, that's when we are not, uh, you know, you do some rebuilding the marshes, planting trees, mm-hmm. and uh, bring Christmas trees out and everything to rebuild something. But in a way, when I think about it, when they cut down trees being 3,000 years old, right. I think we lost this battle of rebuilding the, the, the jungle we had here. We did. And there's been a lot of reasons as to why, and this is what a lot of our K-12 through groups and our university classes and everyone asks, why haven't we replanted and rebuilt this swamp system? And there's been a lot of reasons for that. Uh, number one, we had a lot of salt historically coming into this system um, as sea level has risen. Uh, as uh, structures like the Mr. Go, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet were built. That's that big, long, straight shipping channel uh, that was uh, built in the 1950s to let ships go straight into New Orleans from the Gulf. That led a lot of salt into the Lake Pontchartrain system. And as we've lost our wetlands through erosion, uh, we tried, there have been a lot of replanting efforts that have been tried over the years, and we had one Uh, that was a mitigation project with the university back in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. And the salt levels were simply too high to have any regrowth. Uh, Dr. Gary Schaefer is one of our primary wetland ecologists at Southeastern. And he had a student uh, that studied salinity maximum rates that young cypress saplings could handle. And after you hit about three or three and a half parts per thousand, four for sure, four parts per thousand of salt, you have a hundred percent mortality after two months of young cypress saplings, you know, ones that are as big around as say my my two thumbs put together. Um, So you, you have that limit of salt. Now, I'll have to say this, and when we tried to replant trees back in the day, and like I said, in the early 2000s, they just, it wouldn't happen because of the salt levels. Those salt levels are going down now because of the closure of the Mr. Go seven years ago. They go down. So we have seen salt levels go back down. You know, the open ocean is 35 parts per thousand. Freshwater is zero. We're back down every time we check now at Turtle Cove, less than one part 
per thousand, one or less. Uh, whereas it used to be, you know, two or three. And again, when we had hurricanes uh, and drought situations, we would get very high salinity rates, seven, eight parts per thousand. Manatees, you know, sharks uh, out here and everything. That has kind of gone down and changed a lot. But we still have now the issues of sea level rise. You know, our seas are rising at about three and a half millimeters a year. Doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. It's year after year after year. And subsidence, we sink. We're a delta, so we're constantly sinking. Organic materials always decomposing in the wetlands. The water is always getting squeezed out, so we're sinking, sinking, sinking. Then we have storms. We have nutria that eat the young cypress saplings. We have oil spills, barrier island degradation. Uh, hypoxic issues, and most importantly, Robert, let's say something cheerful. You know, I mean, I, I'm flattered enough here. They're building a levee into the up line. Move <laughs> now, move, Dude, leave, leave. <laughs> well, you know, positive. Uh, we flooded here a couple times, and we're building higher. But I see where we, like you said, stuff is sinking, mm-hmm. and also, you know, I laugh about when we're building somewhere a levee. It's simple physics. You build a levee here, the water has to go somewhere. Then the next one gets the water, then he gets the exactly. levee. It's all a uh, And not only that, but the biggest thing I, I didn't mention when I was you know, telling you all the reasons why we're having so many wetland problems is that because we levied the Mississippi River, we don't let the river flood and deposit sediments and rebuild the wetlands every year, as it used to do thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, before modern Europeans came in and settled this area. So we're not letting the wetlands build back up. Um, there's, there's a lot of things, though, that we can do to live more sustainably. It's not a total, you know, there's not, there's not anything that we just cannot do. We can do some things to live more sustainably, but we're not going to ever recapture all no. that land we lost, and we're not going to stop wetland mm-hmm. loss in its tracks. As long as we build levees, I mean, as soon as the when you read the book about the rising tide, the right. flood of 22 or 27, when was it? The flood of 1927. 27. You know, that's when everything started, and they're building mm-hmm. these gigantic levees mm-hmm. and everything else, and that's when it's... Uh, since and what, oil and gas extraction, you know, creating ta- uh, caverns underneath the wetlands. Um, all of those things, you know, our own carbon footprints are big. I mean, they're huge. Uh, that's leading to climate change, increased sea level rise, you know, all these things. So humans have had a big role to play um, in the loss of our wetlands, uh, although deltas do reach natural points of maturity and then they start to decline. That's just a natural thing, but we've accentuated that as, as humans through the levees, our carbon footprints, etc. I heard sometimes one time in a little seminar that talked about where the Mississippi, if we wouldn't levy it in, it wouldn't be anymore in, in New Orleans. It would be down in Morgan City. It would be the Morganza Spillway. That's Eventually exactly it would right. be the norm, natural flow over the last 150 years. We hold the river in place where it's at 70% coming down to New Orleans and 30% coming down the Atchafalaya through Morgan City. Uh, with the old river lock and dam structure up in Simsport, Louisiana, where my family's from in Evalls Parish. We hold it in place. And we've almost lost it a few times. And probably one day we will. There's a great book uh, by John McPhee on that called The Control of Nature, a book written back in the 80s, I think. Yeah, I have to read it. But nature is bigger. Eventually it's catching up. Absolutely. You can, you'll never end up 
defeating Mother Nature. But let's go back to uh, Turtle Cove. And, you know, we are partnering up with you with the Christmas tree recycling and drop-off location here at Middendorf's. And what other things uh, you do down there about raising funds and everything for you? Well, the Christmas tree project is something certainly we've been doing for a long time. I want to say we're at year 25 or 26 now. And um, I've kind of kept track and kept records. Uh, we've deployed about 40,000 Christmas trees in the marsh during that time. So that uh, has been one of our kind of most noticeable efforts. And the Christmas tree recycling program is so good because it allows those trees, wherever you put them in the marsh, to let the grass grow up through them. And once the grass starts growing up through them, they can capture sediments that do flow through during tidal areas. They create habitat for animals. Um, they control erosion. Uh, they keep the trees out of landfills, which is a huge effort in, in amongst itself. And uh, also it's a great educational tool, an environmental educational tool, because it gets people to do some hands-on work, which is really nice. We're also, though, involved with a couple of other organizations in replanting again trying to replant again cypress trees so we are partnering uh, with the lake Pontchartrain basin foundation and the coalition to restore coastal louisiana uh, where they are replanting with our help use of boats and, and so forth uh, about five to ten thousand trees a year combined those two organizations and they're doing it in areas now that have less salt than we used to have. Again, so because salinity rates have gone down, that's the only reason you know to even try this again. Um, but the effort now is to try to find those areas that are high enough ground where the trees will survive and not be inundated underwater the whole time. And so there's some areas up along Middle Bayou that that's happening right now. So you guys check first the salinity rate before you go out there and plant the trees, make sure the marsh is ready to do Absolutely, it. and trying to find the highest ground. And the highest ground is usually right on the edges of bayous, like Middle Bayou, where there's a natural levee. Because as the natural bayous flood, just like the rivers, uh, they deposit those sediments over time and create that little higher ground right there. So if you can find areas that are a little bit higher ground and the low salinity rates, which we're seeing now, then you have a fighting chance to try to, to get some of the trees to regrow. Okay. And, they, and they are noticing some pretty good survival rates, uh, they being the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation and the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. You mentioned uh, cypress trees, and that's what we want out there. I saw a few days ago in Chalmette, their high school, they have a program going, and you and I talked about one time they tried mangroves, and they don't like the freeze. But they're, they have, they're planting mangroves since they somehow got adopted, but it's much further south. It's by Port Salt. Because they can handle salt much better than cypress trees can. Again, cypress trees have that limit. Right. of a, somewhere between three and four parts per thousand where the young cypress saplings simply will not handle that salt. But here it would be months. too cold for the, uh, the mangrove. Yes, it would because, I mean, you saw how cold it got yeah. over here. When you get a freeze like that, Maybe those would, would probably not last. Maybe they can propagate it on some other trees because since they would do awesome to keep the marshes in place. There's a big um, air propagation uh, study that's going on. It's been funded by Entergy. And I know the person, Sarah Mack, uh, who owns her own company. I think it's called uh, Tierra Resources. 
And they did a study of dropping by air seeds, seeding of black mangroves along the coast, you know, the, the hmm. far southern coast. And uh, they just did that, I want to say, just to, uh, maybe about within the last six months. And I would like to uh, see the studies on how that's shaken out. I haven't heard anything on it, but that's a study that was funded by Entergy through one of their environmental uh, programs. Well, if they have the seeds, make sense. I mean, some of them will survive. It's a lot easier than going out with boats and planting oh, trees sure. and everything. I mean, the, you, you know, have to try everything to do something. The efforts of replanting cypress trees, you know, young cypress saplings, or even some bigger ones that, you know, might be uh, six months old, let's say, bigger trees, uh, is a huge undertaking in the marsh to haul them out there, to dig the hole, to put the tree, you know, to put the nutrient protection device on it, because if you don't put a nutrient protection device, a NED, nutrient excluding device, we call them, uh, then you're going to lose those. Whose idea was it to bring the nutrient here to destroy our marsh? Supposedly the McElhenney family of uh, Tabasco, I see some Tabasco sauce on your table over there, uh, they used to bring things back from all the places that they would travel around the world by ship. And they went to Argentina and uh, brought back some nutria. Uh, and then I think they had just a couple of dozen. They were going to look at them as using a, as becoming a, a new fur option, you know, for the a new pelt oh, okay. industry. And uh, Hurricane came through, I think, in like 1936 or 35, one of those early 1930s, and uh, let them out. And now there's a hundred million nutria all the way up the west coast to uh, Seattle and the east coast up through Maine, uh, and they displace the native muskrat habitat. So, so they we are need to definitely up, not good. We have to come up with some good recipes for it. That was tried. Back in the 1990s, I remember when there were uh, legislation was passed to give restaurants tax breaks that could come up with ways to make Nutria a good dish, but people could not get over the Nutria rat idea in their heads. So it was even suggested that they change the name and? to the Swamp Rabbit or the Marsh Hare. It sounds better. It sounds More better. More appetizing. But, but people still couldn't, couldn't get quite past that. You know, there's many things people put Have in you tried it over here? Thin fried nutria? Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to thin fry it. You know, it's a uh, we could make some jerky and everything, or uh, yeah. some stew, like with Middendorf's a German name. We can make a goulash. Goulash would be excellent. <laughs> you know, uh, sauce piquant. He yeah, has done that before. So you know, we can you can eat anything, and actually, it, it should be. It's uh, pretty tasty. Cl- I've had it. And I've it should be clean. It's, it's a, a, a vegetarian. It's, it's a gen- very clean animal. Yes. Yeah. It is. So it just we have to rethink this marketing. We put Christy on this project. I want to, you know, she comes up with some great names. You just have Gr- to be careful not to get the nutrient itch from it. Yeah. Gr- uh, Christy is in our office, and she comes up with all these crazy names and everything. Okay, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, also, one of our neighbors and good friends of you, uh, Hayden Reno, who catch the gators we serve here and everything, uh, he's with you down there at uh, Turtle Cove. Yes, he has. He's been there for 30 years. Hayden is actually the real guy behind Turtle Cove. <laughs> He'll tell you himself. It would not run without him. Okay, so so we wait till we talk to him and see what he has to say about it. No, he's been there a long time. He's our caretaker, our facilities technician guy. Uh, He is the uh, maintenance supervisor. I mean, he handles all the issues at Turtle Cove uh, with our boats and everything else, and and he's a a great resource. He's also uh, on the side. Uh, a commercial fisherman. Yeah. Uh, as you know, he and uh, hunter. fishes catfish. I mean, he He's an alligator hunter. Uh, yeah. He catches blue crabs. He has a beautiful 
uh, new uh, boat uh, that he's going to be doing his crabbing with, I guess. Um, his brother's a shrimper. Um, his cousins have built the Reno skiffs out here. So it's a family affair living in the man shack. And I tell you what, I tell you what's so, what's so cool uh, is to look at a family like that, the Reno's, who have always made a living one way or another off of this ecosystem. And it's changed as, as the environment has changed. They're the classic example of how human society uh, and the culture has changed along with it. You know, uh, they started off, um, obviously, people in this area logging. And when all the trees were gone, they moved into trapping. So they trapped a lot of animals. Uh, then they moved into fishing, uh, seafood. Uh, then they moved into um, restaurants and boat building and, uh, you know, ecotourism. It's just, it's an amazing laboratory of study. This Manshack area is an amazing uh, lab to look at of when the environment changes, how does the socioeconomic issues change with it, and so forth. It's constantly moving and evolving. Have to adapt to have to, yeah, we, as we know, you know, it, just to let people know, in 2008, when uh, uh, Ike came, uh, Hurricane Ike hit Houston, uh, we flooded, both of us. You flooded big, mm -hmm. the worst we ever had. It was so funny when in 2008, when we flooded, the neighbors came higher and I just had Middendorf's for one year and said, oh, you're here for the record. I said, I don't want to be here for the record. Well, and then uh, 2012, we had another record. I think it was barely a yeah. storm. Uh, but by then you were raised everything high. Uh, you didn't get any water from Isaac, right? Isaac is our new high water mark, just like it was probably for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we flooded long ago. The biggest one was Hugo back in 85, I want to say. That was our first big flooding event. I came over here in 97 back to Louisiana from after I got my, my doctorate in Wisconsin. And we started noticing soon after that smaller and smaller storms would flood us more. I remember Hurricane Lily, and I remember um, Tropical Storm Matthew in 2004, right before Katrina. You know, we got some really high water, and we were thinking, my gosh, what, you know, what is going on? Every smaller and smaller storm, we're getting more and more water. Of course, Katrina hit. That was a watershed moment for us, as it was for many, many people. And uh, Rita was built 10 days after. That Rita was, was right after. We rebuilt after that. And then uh, Isaac, uh, Hurricane uh, Gustav and Ike both mm -hmm. together in 2008. I remember seeing Karen right after she bought this place, right before the hurricanes hit. And I was like, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a good feeling. But here the difference. Um, but Isaac was a high watermark that's in 2012. High watermark. Yeah. But even... Um, Turtle Cove is on the east of us in the pass between Lake Pontchartrain and Lake Mirepoix. Mm -hmm. uh, we are on the west side of the railroad track. So we get the water after it. Like the highest water for us is when the, the storms go to the uh, west of us. Like Hurricane Katrina did not flood Middendorf. But two weeks later, Rita came and pushed the water from Lake Murpah into us. Right. I was here in the winter when we have real high water in Lake Murpah when the storm pumps it in and then the wind shifts. When we get the southwesterly wind and push the whole lake over here and piles up the water, that's problems. when we get it. Mm -hmm. We always get it when the water goes out. Mm -hmm. When it's go, you, it goes down in your building and we get it in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's crazy. People don't realize we don't flood 
from the wind is flooding us, basically pushing right. the uh, the water in the right direction. Yeah, because our tides are all dominated by wind, yeah. and the more structures that are built, you know, to protect areas, you know, then that's going to move water to other areas, and then you have sea level rise on top of that, which is always making it more and more and more for everybody. So, but you've built up, you've done a great thing. You know, the the way that we protect against all this now and the way we try to restore and protect uh, is something that um, Dr. John Lopez of the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation coined this term, the multiple lines of defense against storms. And it starts off out in the Gulf when you start to reach, you know, our bays and our natural ridges, like the, the Manchac Land Bridge is a natural ridge. It's a natural protection. And then you get into a little bit higher elevation areas. And then you start moving into your uh, human-created uh, ways of trying to address flooding, you know, starting off with levees and uh, doing some restoration and raising the elevation of your buildings that you build on. And then the very last thing, there's like 15 of them, I'm just telling you five or six, is evacuation routes. So there's a way to live more sustainably with a disappearing coast, and that's what we're all trying to do now. And so by raising up your building like you've done now, I'm sitting outside of sea. How high up are we off of the... Uh, we are at eight and a half. Not, we had nine. Now we had ten feet. Yeah, so you've built for the future. Because well, you but how continue. long is the future? You know. Well, nobody knows that exactly. Right. You know, we don't know that exactly. There, there's talk of, you know, five or, or six feet of, um, of uh, sea level rise over the next century. And, you know, it's debatable. We're going to see that, it since we're both going to turn like 200 years old, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Actually, our, we'll be flooded. Our little, where we're buried or whatever will be flooded. Maybe we should spread the ashes and get cremated first. And then that way we'd be everywhere yeah. instead of just, you know, underwater <laughs> six feet here in Manchester. But, you know, <laughs> as much we can build for the future. I do agree we should build high. Uh, yes, there should be a little bit of levee protection in certain areas, but certain areas... I think should be there for parking water. You know, certain areas, Absolutely. it's my personal opinion, you know, to put levees in an area where nothing is there to protect besides land. Uh, also, they should enforce the codes in areas and not let people build in certain areas. The in best maps that I ever saw, or the best, you know, visual effect I ever saw was after Katrina, the Times-Picayune uh, did a little article about where people used to live in New Orleans. And they showed the map of 1978. Where did people live? Well, they lived along the Mississippi River, the sliver on the river where I live, right off of Hillary Street, you know, four blocks away from the river, where your other restaurant used to be in the French Quarter, right along. That's high ground. That's where everybody lived. No one lived in those other areas further away. So they had that map there. Right on the side of it, they put the map of where did Katrina flood? And guess what? It flooded in all of those areas where nobody used to live. Even the Indian guides told Bienville, no build here, water come here, no, bad. So, you know, people were just smarter back then. Now, you know, with development and money, and we just try to, you know, every inch of real estate we can find and try to build, and you think levees are going to protect you, and they don't eventually. There's no better you know, protection than natural elevation. In Absolutely, let the like water this. be underneath it. The pumps are going to fail one day. 
you know, the levee's going to break, whatever. But if you have natural elevation, if you're living in the smart places, you'll probably come out pretty good. So we got to be smarter about where we live and where we build for sure. I have one more question, or a few more questions under you here. Uh, you know, people are real confused when they come to Middendorf's. First, our address is Acres, so explain to them when they go and thing. On an interstate state, Manchac. Right. Uh, where we are, and then some people in Mississippi who come down there call it Middendorf, since we are in Middendorf. So. <laughs> the whole town is Middendorf. So what, what do we have to rename this town to? Well, I like the name Manchac. Acres, I think, is just the formal name. It's what's on the post office address. I think it's, it's what's on the old maps is, you know, the name of the, the actual legal name. But everyone knows this as Manchac. Well, it's on the interstate. Everyone, yeah. Everyone knows this area as Manchac, and I think it. I think that probably would be something uh, appropriate, unless you know there might be some family members out there with names, the name of Acres somewhere that might uh, not agree with that. But everyone knows this as Manchac, for Manchac. sure. Well, actually, just to let people know, we actually on Jones Island in a way. Right. Yes. You know, West Jones Island is right over there. Yeah, so between you, the South Pass, North Pass, it's all Jones Island. Jones Island, correctly. Yeah. Uh, so since we talk about Manchac, when was the first time in Manchac and did you eat at Middendorf's? Uh, I was thinking about that and I think the first time was back in the early 1990s um, that I remember. Now my family has told me, oh yeah, we used to go there when I was much younger. But I remember coming back and a friend of mine in Baton Rouge at the time said, let's go to Middendorf's. And when I came in and we had whatever we ate, and I think it was some, um, we had thin gumbo, fried catfish, we had some thin catfish. Thin fried catfish. Yeah, but I always like, <laughs> no, but I always, I always liked the gumbo and I liked, uh, you know, getting, when you have boiled crabs every now and then. Uh, but I did remember it when I came in and we ate and I was like, yes, I do remember having been here. And my parents had told me they used to come uh, back further in the day when I was a younger person. Because I grew up, I was born in New Orleans, 1965, in my mama's belly when Hurricane Betsy hit on Dante Street over there. So, yeah. And then, so I, then we moved. No wonder you're so strange. You dramatized since then from the hurricane. That's then. right. Well, my dad is, uh, is French, and my mom is Cajun and French. And so, and then my dad's mother was Italian, so I got a mix of French, Cajun, and Italian all in there. So you fit perfect out here in the small. I, I do. But you so, know, back then, people, you said Hurricane Betsy, when you see some of the pictures, yes, it was devastating. But the people dealt with us much better back then since the buildings were different. You know, and obviously. But let me tell you what else was different. When Hurricane Betsy hit in 1965, we had many more wetlands that buffered and protected the city of New Orleans. Yes, it flooded in the Lower Nine and everything else, but it didn't flood to the extent that Katrina did 40 years later. And that's because we had lost so many wetlands. That's exactly what happened. And now when people have to rebuild houses with a sheetrock, with the insulation, they have all this fungus and mold. Back then they had yeah. the cypress board, they had that's wallpaper right. on it, and they that's hosted right. it out and cleaned it and it was fine. Keep on trucking. Exactly, on. exactly. Earlier we talked also about you. I know you like to eat, but yes, tell me about it. You also tell me you like hey, to cook. Hey, what are you saying? No, we just talked about okay. you like my food. <laughs> Not the, I didn't say anything about your... <laughs> But just to let people know, we're both very healthy and active. Yes, we uh, are. We watch what we eat. Yes. But you like to cook, too. I love to cook. What do you like to cook? I know you go hunting. I do. I, uh, I, I'm a wood duck hunter. Uh, and I love to cook. I love to cook the old traditional 
uh, Louisiana recipes. So I'm really big in the caution delays, you know, roasting pigs. In fact, uh, we used to roast them in a Vols Parish. Uh, well, I used to roast them uh, with the family. We would hang it, in, oh, you know, on a, on a uh, tripod in front mm-hmm. of a big fire. And they still do that. That's the best way. That's the, you'll never eat roast pig better than like that. But when I moved to the city, I couldn't build a big fire. So uh, Cajuns back in the day that moved to more populated areas, I guess, needed something to more easily cook a roast pig and build on a big fire. And that was uh, how they developed the Cajun microwave. And it's a big cypress box, basically, that you put a pig inside of, and then there's a lid on top that has a, a metal tray in it that you put pieces of wood or charcoal or whatever, and it cooks on the top down. And so, um, actually, uh, in a former life, I used to ship crawfish all over the country. When I was getting my doctorate up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, I had my cousin Stuart and my parents uh, later on shipping live crawfish by air to Madison, Wisconsin. And then I would pick them up and peddle them around. Uh, Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago, all those areas. Uh, and I tried to develop a little market for live crawfish. And we did. And it was a lot of fun. I got my real job when I came back over here in Hammond. I couldn't do that anymore. But we started thinking, what's something else fun you know, that we could do culturally? And so we started... Uh, we had this guy, this master carpenter, uh, Mr. Charles Laborde in uh, Vols Parish, who was known for making a beautiful Cajun microwave, and he started making those for us, and we started uh, selling those and shipping them around, uh, far, sometimes to faraway places, but mostly, you know, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi area, and so uh, that's a fun little thing that we do to kind of spread the culture is, is uh, sell these Cajun microwave pig roasting boxes. You can put turkeys in them, all kinds of stuff. So I cook that. I like to cook uh, gumbos. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, jambalaya, um, cacovan. I love to cook. That's from your uh, Alsace-Lorraine area, right, out there. So meat and potatoes kind of things. Um, All those. I I like to cook all those. I cook breakfast every morning for my kids. Chocolate chip pancakes, bagels. That sounds pretty healthy. It's very healthy. My youngest son. It's a good start. Every day, chocolate chip pancakes with butter and cane syrup on top. Oh, my God. Hey, Ava, uh, since we talked earlier about the Nutria, and now you said you'd uh, peddle crawfish around the world, did you watch the last couple months where in certain parts of this nation, even in Europe, uh, you know, I read the newspaper in Germany, wherever the Louisiana crawfish ended up that we thought we could peddle, (laughs) they're taking over the world now? In Berlin, they came out of the sewer. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, I don't know, where was it? In Chicago? Yeah. In, in, right. in, uh, uh, wherever. And they don't know what to do with them, right? Yeah, and it's like any, and it's not good, first of all. Because <laughs> that's like, right. It's We're invasive. laughing about it. It's yeah. invasive. Any time you bring something that's not native you know, or invasive, you know, there's problems that will happen. I mean, we see it all the time with, you know, we had wild pigs. We have Nutria, you know, Asian carp, uh, uh, Chinese tallow trees, um, whatever you want to, you know, all the, you can go down the, down the list. So yeah, the Louisiana crawfish are pretty uh, pretty hardy. tough customers and hardy man. So when you put them somewhere else against these other ones, <laughs> I know they, they're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right now. I watched this year the story. There was in every part in this nation and even in Europe, they had some problems with the Louisiana crawfish right. taking over. Right. It's uh, it's, it's wild. Let's uh, we're going to slowly finish up here. Tell me a little bit uh, in. Tell us a little bit 
if people want to donate or help Turtle Cove, how could they do it? Well, the best way is to go to our website, which is uh, www.southeastern.edu slash Turtle Cove. That's our website, and there's a donation link on there. And if anybody is interested in having their kids' schools come out, you know, for a trip to Turtle Cove, uh, they can contact me. I'm, I'm on that website. Uh, we set up uh, organized groups to Turtle Cove. And we do a lecture, and we'll take them out on a boat ride, uh, point out all sorts of, you know, different species of things they might see, uh, birds, reptiles, amphibians, uh, mammals, fish, the vegetation. Uh, we go out to Turtle Cove. We walk along our boardwalk. We do some dip netting where we try to identify some of the things that they're catching. We identify the vegetation, and uh, it's a very educational field trip. These are all educational oriented field trips uh, where we just try to help people get a better understanding of the wetland environment around them. And so I should mention, we already talked about the research end of things. Turtle Cove is really uh, based in providing research opportunities for all of our scientists, our grad students, our undergrads, other universities. Uh, we do university education, so we take our university classes out to Turtle Cove and other university classes out. We do what I just mentioned. Uh, we have teacher training workshops where we train K through 12 teachers in how to use a natural environment. We just had a workshop this past Saturday uh, on a grant that uh, myself and my uh, counterpart uh, at uh, UNO's surf facility, Coastal Education Research Facility, uh, and Diana Maygarden runs that uh, building, that facility. We had a teacher workshop. And then we're most known probably for our public outreach program, our K through 12 and other general community groups uh, outreach trips where we take those field trips and we, we teach people all those things I mentioned. And we have our own restoration projects too. So those five main goals are what we uh, do to reach our mission, which is to better facilitate uh, an understanding of the wetland environment all around us. And people also have to understand if they come different times a year, it's constantly changing. Like in the winter, we have the bald eagles there, we yes. have the brown pelicans, yep. they leave around April and migrate back and so we have different birds and different uh, critters out there at different times of year. Exactly and, and I love going on the winter trips. Oh it's beautiful. Uh, the summer can get a little hot, the spring and the fall are perfect so any time of the year you know we're out there 12 months uh, out the year. If you have any questions or comments you can message us through the Anchor app or email us to chitchat at middendorfsrestaurant.com Thank you for joining me today, and we will see you next uh, next month for the first Thin Fried Friday. And Robert, thank you again, and guten appetit. Thanks for having me, Horst. I appreciate it. And what's for lunch? Thin fried catfish. All right, let's go.